Okay, I see both thumbs. One thumb has significance. One thumb is just, you know, superfluous. Yeah, just to make them feel good. It's an emotional thing. It doesn't have any value. There's the thumb that matters. Okay, shall I go? Okay, here we are, February 5th. I should start out by saying that we're going to be back on February the 19th. Uh, so keeping everybody as much as I can on, on what I'm trying to accomplish. Okay, February 5th, lecture discussion number 191 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 15. And, well, we, and, and by we, uh, I mean me, uh, me left off at Hebrews 10, 19 through 31 uh, on uh, the last time I, I did a lecture. What date was that? January somewhere. Uh, it had to be. And the uh, 5th was February. That is today, right? Okay, but anyway, somewhere the last one in January. I left off at Hebrews 10:19 through 31, and more specifically Hebrews 10:23 that says this: "Let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful." Now, notice I accented certain words in there, and a whole bunch of them actually. It's a fantastic thing that Hebrews 10:23. It's a cause and effect format. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering because he who has promised is faithful. So it's, uh, I added the because. Now two quick questions. Who is he that has promised and is faithful? Who is that? That's obvious, I hope. What did he promise? How about a third question? What's, what is our hope? What are we hoping for? What hope is being specified in that verse? Fifth question. What does faithful mean to him especially? Fourth question. I skipped the fourth question. Why is he faithful? And then, of course, the final question. Why is faithful the solution? Because it's outlining an issue. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering because he who is promised is faithful. So... All of those things have to come together for us. And I'm beginning with Hebrews 10.23 today due to the embracement by the two factions that otherwise completely disagree. The hyper-Calvinists and the Armenians, both of them count Hebrews 10.23 as reinforcing their positions. And that's mathematically, logically, that can't be correct. I can't have diametric opposites, reciprocals that are not equal. That's the mathematical transitive property violation. They can't be reciprocals or they can't be absolute opposites, negative and positive, and be equal to something. So, last last time we were here, uh, 190, you folks out there on the internet, if you manage to uh, withstand lecture 190, you, you get a badge in the mail. Right? You get something, you stripes on your shirt or something. Skittles. Uh, but if you manage to, to hang on through Lecture 190 and endeavored to, to persevere to the bitter end, uh, you may have conjoined to the method uh, bonded, bonded to it or the mechanism that leads to accurate theological conclusions. And in this case, to Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. All of Scripture, for that matter. Once you understand how to approach Scripture, it applies to the entire book. Because it's, it is a system that is un 
unprecedented and it's never been equaled and it's never been duplicated. And there it is in our Bible. To repeat that from last time we were together, the only structure that prevails, the, the, the critical steps that are to realize the perfect, which is the Bible, the, that which is perfect has come, 1 Corinthians 13.10. We have that which is perfect. Now, my translation is not perfect. But the perfect came. We'll get into the agency of humanity here in a few minutes. But that, but the perfect, the Bible has been designed by the author, the Holy Spirit, the living God. The, it's a living book using the agency, the intermediation of those whom he inspired to, to compile and collect the word of God in the exact manner as the creation. What did I mean by that? This Bible is designed exactly the same way as the creation is. As, let's just take humanity. We have two trillion cells and they all interconnect and they all work together. And this Bible is identical to that design. So whoever designed my body, whoever designed this creation, whoever designed all of this complexity, he's the one that wrote that book, this book. To use the physics vernacular, the Bible is astonishingly entangled. Every verse contains information that attaches to all the other verses or other verses for certain. And understanding this design is crucial to avoid theological error. And then today, specifically Hebrews 10, 19 through 23, trying to figure out one of that, one of, what that verse is saying in Hebrews, uh, verse 23. I said during uh, lecture 190 that the ego imi, which is the Greek, or the Ehya, which is the Hebrew, the I am that I am. That's Exodus 3.14, John 11.25. That, the I am that I am can be traced to every single verse in the Bible. Every single verse will trace back to Exodus 3.14. The process uh, may be logarithmic in some cases, in some instances, but but it's directly obvious in others and and. Stuff that we can easily, not easily, you can't easily do anything, but you can find some things reasonably uh, apparent. And today I'm going to issue a pretty bold talk for a psychopian, a cadaverous, aged male. Okay. If, if, if there's pretty bold talk, can there be ugly bold talk? There has to be able, you have to have ugly bold talk if you have pretty bold talk. I'm suggesting. Anyway, there is only one successful approach to reading this Bible, and that is the entanglement approach. That's my new definition of it. Not new, it's been, I've been saying that for years. And if you have the entanglement approach or the entanglement system, then you're going to resolve the meanings of Scripture and you'll be way ahead of those who have no idea that the Bible is designed like this. And, and, it's, and that's something I attempted to portray at Lecture 190. And I, I, like I said, I cured insomnia. Just people dropped like flies. It was crazy. We are not going to, we're not going to locate every entanglement, every connection in Scripture. We're just not going to do it. We haven't done it with the human body. We haven't done it with the universe. We haven't done it with the ecology of the, of the earth. You're not going to do it with the Bible. He's way ahead of us. And some of them are actually intentionally hidden. He does hide himself. That's part of the process that he has designed. Why does he hide himself, of course, is a key question. And that's the key question of the Calvinistic position and the Arminian position, or Arminianism. Why does he hide himself? They have to solve that. Because he does. 
He has a reason. What do you suspect the reason is? One or both of those groups are wrong, and both of them are wrong. But one of them is really wrong, and the fact that he hides himself is the reason that they don't know. Countermands their position. But there's an overwhelming number, obviously, and we're never going to be able to do it. We're just going to do the best we can. But if you at least make an attempt to compile as many of the eminent verses or pieces that you can unearth in a legal environment, for example, we'll describe this as the discovery phase of any kind of trial or, or murder solution or whatever you're looking for. But I think that perhaps the most uh, applicable analogy that I'm trying to convey here would be the genetic genealogy or the forensics that's going on right now. That's fantastic stuff. Some guy does something 40 years ago and they're able to find his 15th cousin and they're able to take that 15th cousin DNA and find the guy that actually committed the crime. And that is what they are doing. They are doing very much what I'm trying to get everyone that's listening to me to do. Find the verse. Tell yourself, I don't understand it. What's the solution? I have this position or I'm reading a position, um, but I don't know for sure and I don't like that position, that position. I go, that, that's, that stinks. How can I disprove it? How can I prove the, a, a different position? How, how can I learn something here? Well, you do what they do. They go around, they find a partial DNA strand and they uncover the entire lineage. And that's what we're trying to do with the Bible. Ultimately, uh, we all descend from Adam and the woman, and we all share heredity through Noah and the eight souls to Adam and the woman. But for our purposes, instead of trying to find the entire lineage all the way back to Noah and through Noah to Adam, uh, what we should do is see if we can come up with five verses that are uh, five generations of verses, if you want to think of it that way. Just go find five verses that attach to the verse that you're having difficulty with. I have said throughout my whole so-called career, do not throw out a Bible, the whole of the Bible, because of one verse you don't understand. Go find out what that verse really means, and the way you find out what that verse really means is you go find out, or you go find and uncover all the other verses that attach to it. How many attach to it? Well, eventually they're all going to go back to Exodus 3.14. Because the I am that I am. That's the existence, that's the beingness. And again, that's living. He is the living God. And this is his living Bible. So you're obviously going to have the living aspect in every single verse. Ultimately, you'll be able to trace yourself back. Okay, I hope that made sense. Here's the question for this. Why did he involve mankind in the process? When he compiled his book, why, did he have, why didn't he just do it? He didn't. He, there's a time element here. There's a compilation issue. There's Council of Chalcedon, there's the Nicene, principle, or Nicene Council as well. There's all of these different groups of human beings tried to decide which, which letters belonged in the Bible, what criteria they would use. Why did he have human beings write it down? Moses wrote five, Paul wrote twelve. What, why? Why was the Bible written and connected, compiled by mankind and, for example, not the angels? Why didn't he have the angels do it? Does he have options? And when you answer the question, why, why does the God of the living compose and compile a living scripture and utilize human beings to do it? When you answer that question, where are you going to be? What's the first place you're going to be? I believe that the first place you're going to go 
is to the lie of Satan, and that's Genesis 3, 4, Ezekiel 28, 16, Psalm 10, 6 through 7, Psalm 10, 11 through 13, Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2. That's where you'll go. What are those about? Free will. That's why he had mankind do it. What is, when mankind participates in the writing and the collecting of this book, this living book that is inspired by God himself, that is in God's mind, when man is involved in that process, God is doing it for a purpose. There's a, there's a reason behind that. He could have done it. He could have just poofed it into existence. He could have had the angels do, do it. He could have done it many different ways, but this is the only way that he would do it because he's omniscient. He has no, he's complete, so he has no inaccuracies. He has no, uh, he leaves no information outside of him. All of it is there. So he has every piece of information that you can imagine. And from that he makes a conclusion. Okay, for today, ask how can the Calvinistic hyperdeterminists and the Armenians both cite Hebrews 10.23 as evidence of their belief system? How can both of them do it? It makes no sense. Again, the obvious answer is obvious. They don't search the scriptures, John 5.39. He says search the scriptures, didn't he? That's a commandment. That's an order from Christ. Search the scriptures. They testify of me. He actually says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures, you don't search the scriptures. You can't find me in them. And I'm in them everywhere. They're marinated in Christ. All the scriptures testify of Christ, the I am that I am. Well, we're going to get back to the controversies of Hebrews 10, 19 through 31, specifically again, 10, 23, a little later today. But uh, first, let's throw some more time at free will and time. Henry Bergson, Bergsonian philosophy. To repeat, for those who listen intermittently, Bergson saw time is wedded to free will. He said that's what time is. Time and free will are together. As opposed to the physicists who describe time and space as a uh, homogeneous medium. So Bergson actually said, and if you've listened, if anybody remembers, I'll repeat this. He actually said of Einstein, Einstein's position of space and time and Minkowski and everyone that adheres to it, is he called that careless elementary thinking and untrue. And that become, that's why he's so important to this discussion. I almost added another hour to lecture 190, January 22nd, 2023, for those of you who are trying to find it. And who would try to find it? That's right, the insomniac. They would run to it because Medicare does accept me as a system of medical cure for insomnia. Yeah. Yeah. So you can be reimbursed by Medicare if you. I'm kidding. Not really. I know the truth. But I was going to add another hour. I, I did. I was really thinking about it because I knew I, pretty much what I'm doing today, I was going to add to last week. Just blast my way through it and then take a year off, right? No, that was, but I resisted, and I only uh, presented Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.15, 7.22, Ecclesiastes 12.7. If you remember, that's the spirit of the breath of life. We have the spirit of the breath of life. He gave us that. So I'm asking the question, what does it do? Does it have any limitations? If it does have limitations, what are they? If it does, If it does have more than what you think it does, what do you think it does? 
And I, I made the comment that the spirit of the breath of life possesses the facility to resist the sin nature or the fallen condition, Romans 5, 12 through 14, with respect to the salvation call, the salvation draw of Jesus Christ. In other words, God recognized that sin nature would seem to be incompatible with his call to salvation because we're idiots. And he had a contingency. Oh my gosh, imagine that. The omniscient God figured this problem out and us stupid human beings can't do it. We think, we, we think we've done it when we have never come close. Christ says, come, Revelation 21, 16 through 17, and the Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let him who hears and let him who thirsts come. Whosoever desires, let him take the matter, I'm sorry, take the water of life freely. That's what he says, Revelation 21, 16 through 17. That's almost the very end of the book. So he tells you something. He says, note the, the capacity of mankind to hear him and to take something from him in order to drink the water of life, which is free, absolutely free. Also note that freely would by definition include no, did I, I hope I say no, I should scream no. Freely does not have, does has no impediment or interference from Christ God, Jesus God. There is no imp- infringement there. Come freely. If you hear me and you take and you respond to come, it'll be free. And I will not put a blockade in front of it of any kind. And those that insist that God has predetermined a great multitude, an overwhelming majority, that God has predestined that great multitude to condemnation. In effect, of removing their ability to hear, to come, to take, to drink freely. So that can't be done. It's total inability is their doctrine. And actually removing there, I shouldn't have said removing. That's an inaccuracy. The position of the absolute determinist is that, uh, that the many that are condemned to damnation, to the lake of fire, they were born without any potentiality. They're essentially cursed from birth to eternal suffering. I'm asking an obvious question now. Is that an impediment? Is predestination for those people an impediment to their salvation? Does that, in fact, collide and resist and is the absolute reciprocal of freely? Obvious to me. Created without hope seems to be the ultimate interference. It freely does not comport. And so I'm obviously imposing this, opposing this kind of thinking, as you should know by now. I said in Lecture 190, page 17, first paragraph, that our sinful fallen, fallen condition is equipped with the breath of the Spirit of life. That is inside everyone, saved, unsaved. We all have the breath of the Spirit of life, so do animals. Every single animal that has breath has the breath of the Spirit of life, the nefesh, the ra'ah, the shayah. Right? The Hayah, however you pronounce it. I don't always pronounce the Hebrew even close. As Dr. Fruchtenbaum told me, don't talk. Don't even, don't even try. What's the matter with you? Have them call me, he said. If you feel the compunction to do that, stop yourself. Have them call me. Best advice I ever got. It doesn't stop me, does it? I still embarrass myself every time I try. Our sinful fallen condition 
is equipped with the breath of the spirit of life. And though the Calvinistic hypothesis is that nothing can affect the death through Adam, and what they're saying is is the sin nature is all omnipotent. Nothing can, can penetrate it. Once you have the sin nature, you have no ability to respond to the call of Christ. That's what they say. As you know, you know better than anybody. You're back there fighting with them every day. You know because he's always fighting with them every day, and you have to listen to it, don't you? Yeah. So you're exhausted. I know that Lori knows the feeling. Okay. But we're equipped with the breath of the Spirit of life. And it's obvious to me that God knew, duh, that this situation would occur. That he would have fallen creatures that had to respond to him. Didn't have to, but should. That's a better way of putting it. Had the capacity to. The capacity is in the breath of life. The breath of life just isn't simply your, your automation, if you want to think of it that way. Your animation would be a better word. It isn't just that. It has complexity to it. It's equally obvious that the solution is this breath of life. It is the, uh, it is the solution to this supposed paradox that the Calvinistic people believe we have. They all think it's an irreconcilable. They all do. There's no exceptions. Eventually, they all believe it's irreconcilable. But some throw their hands up and go, okay, I, I, I'm a 3.5 Calvinist. I think there's got to be some kind of solution here. Well, the solution is Genesis 2.7, Ecclesiastes 12.7, 7.22, Genesis 7.15, Genesis. That's the solution. And I say suppose paradox because with infinity there is nothing that is unsolved. He has all the information. If he has all the information, then he has solved everything. Omniscience and infinity says he has all the information. So there is no paradox for him. We have paradox. We suppose that there are paradox. But he does not do that. He, doesn't, he overwhelms it. The one who is the Aleph Tav, the complete one, the infinite one, Revelation 1.8, Revelation 1.11, he knows all things. Therefore, he has no un reconcilable ambiguities. There's no paradoxical issues with him. You have to know that. You have to start there. If you start and say there is no paradox with God because there isn't, then you begin to understand where these positions have gone awry. The breath of life, the living soul given to us by God of the living is a powerful force with operational functions well beyond what we can imagine. And it is the life force, but it also is a multifaceted, unrestricted substance or material. It, we have duality. We have what I call substance dualism. Some people refer to it in other ways. But I believe that the breath of the spirit of life is a substance. Now, it is a spiritual substance versus a physical substance. So we have this spiritual capability and power in us, and we have this physical body. Us is not the body. Us is the, body, is the spirit, right? So you see the spirit of life and our, our soul system intertwined in a way we can only imagine. We can't even begin to conceive it. But it's what he did. And he says, this is what I did. I, need, I felt the need to refresh. I just did this, I hope. I, I, what I'm doing is refreshing paragraph 1, page 17, lecture 190. Because uh, as 99% of all Clifsidians, and, and the debate whether or not it is Clifsidian or Clifsidian rages on, I, I lean towards Clifsidian because it sounds like a disease. And I think that's most appropriate. A terminal disease, at, at least a fungus. Some kind of mold. 
anyway, 99% of all Cliffsidians were out cold by page 17. So I felt like, okay, i got to pound this in this week just to make sure I can... And nobody misses it. So if you you don't now, you don't have to listen to all of 17 pages of last lecture now. Because I can I got it done in five pages. How about that, huh? Anyway, Henri Bergson, which I cannot pronounce Henri correctly, and I'm sure I don't have Bergson correct. He's a French Jew. He recognized the complexity of the breath of the Spirit of life. He recognized it. He said, No, no, no. There's something else here that we're not thinking about. This is the solution. And many philosophers did. Uh, Descartes, for example, just to name the most obvious one, Cartesian philosophy is identical to Bergsonian. Not identical, but very close. Unfortunately, what we're looking at today, we have this monistic uh, evolutionism that has become the love of the academic atheists in our time. and we, It is even infiltrated into the church. and they, So they're willing to accept monistic uh, philosophies. Uh, Romans 128 through 32, Romans 122. The church has allowed this in, and this has made very difficult for people to resolve what I would consider to be elementary principles. And Hebrews says it, you need to get off the milk. You need to. You, you've got the. You're focusing on simple things. And I made the comment early on in this discussion that I believe that Calvinistic uh, hyperdeterminism. And Arminian, temporary or transitory salvation, those are simple concepts. Get away from the simple. Start moving to the complex. Start looking at the breath of life. Start to anticipate or at least contemplate, meditate on what the breath of life is doing. And and understand that God has a mechanism that you don't know about if you have either of those other positions. That's why I wrote that song. Put down the ducky if you want to play the saxophone. (laughs) Okay, I didn't write that. I wrote put down the ducky if you want to play the trumpet. But it doesn't sound as good as the saxophone. In a sin. (sighs) Not that the trumpet doesn't sound better than the saxophone. It does. The saxophone rings better in the statement. Where am I now? Bergson, he considered the consciousness, the mind, the soul, the spirit of the breath of life and concluded that freedom dwells in the consciousness. That's where our free will is. It's not in the body. It's in the consciousness. That's obvious, I think. Freedom is inherent in consciousness. If you have consciousness, you have freedom. That was Bergson's... uh, He worded it this way. He said, consciousness and therefore freedom are therefore free will which is certainly uh, more significant and more concise uh, than my incessant prattle, I frame the discussion by saying freedom is included in the breath of the spirit of life. I think both that and Bergson's view are the same. In addition, uh, Bergson began to use this great sign that is time. He saw this connectivity between the spirit of life, the consciousness, and time, which, as I said before, believe it or not, Everybody agrees, even the atheists. So we're all in agreement that consciousness uh, and time are absolutely wrapped together. And he began to see time as this great sign, and he saw it as particularly evidentiary. Time proves something. What does it prove? It proves it proves many things, actually. But 
but you just focus on one. He believed that it proved free will. We have time, therefore free will. Consciousness and therefore free will. Consciousness and therefore, and therefore freedom. Everyone, especially the atheists, again, can see that time is a function and it, it is derived from a conscious mind. You have to have a conscious mind to even recognize that time is an, is an entity of some kind. We perceive time in the creation. The question is why? My way of addressing this is, why did God install time? You've heard me say that before. He has a reason. He's trying to prove something. What is he trying to prove? How much is he trying to prove? Do you think he's only proving one thing with it? Or do you think he's proving many things with it? Remember, he is the Tav. He is infinite. And he takes all the variabilities and he puts them into a pile. And he knows all of them. How many did he involve with the sign of time? And when did he reveal time? So, Bergson noted that there are two times. There's differences in time. Time has two faces, is the Bergson's quote. Objective time and subjective time. Why does time, and I believe he's correct, absolutely correct, why does time have two features? Obviously, time is doing what? Everything that's a two in the Bible is for what purpose? Or has what connectivity? It goes back to the two witnesses, doesn't it? We have two witnesses. So we have testimony here. Time is testifying of something biblically. Uh, and again, Bergson proposed to separate time from space. He, he saw that again as the atheist view. That, and, and in that view, time serves no purpose. It does nothing. It reduces time to meaninglessness. That space-time makes time meaningless. And, and some might contest my paraphrase here of Bergson, but... Uh, Oh well, you know, protestants going to protest, right? Bergson saw time as, as also being multifaceted and having many purposes, not porpoises, but purposes. I wrote down porpoises the first time I wrote that. So I had to correct it. Flipper, right? So I, I, objective time is real time. Uh, scientific time does not endure in any sense. That might be a more precise rendering of Bergson's thought. So if you did not like my first attempt at it, maybe you'll like that. And if objective time or mechanical or clock time does not endure, then time becomes subjective. And another way to say it this way, time is felt. When you realize that time is felt, now you're beginning to understand maybe what time is or what Bergson thought it was and what the Bible says it is. You see, if there is an intuitive subjective aspect to time, or if time is felt as a sensation, then time is real. Now, the atheists will say time is illusionary. They'll say free will is illusionary. They'll say consciousness is, is nothing. It's emergent from the brain. It's emergent, a non-physical substance emerges from a physical substance. They'll say all kinds of things like that. But if time is felt, then it's subjective, then it's intuitive, then we know it's real. And if time is real, the obvious question detonates, how did time come to be time? You should know that this is a 2,500-year dispute. Is time real or is it an illusion? It's been going on for probably 3,000 years, probably 6,000 years. 
Why does it seem that there are all of these, and it doesn't seem, there are all of these mysteries in the creation that have never been resolved. Time has never been resolved. Gravity has never been resolved. Now, they'll tell you that gravity is a dis- disturbance or it's, it's a diffusion or uh, it's a bending of space-time. That's what they'll say. It, it is, uh, yeah, I, I just don't recognize that as as viability. And I know it's, it's, in, it's everywhere in scientific community. Well, they'll describe a bed sheet and a, and I have done it myself. I have actually had lectures where I try to present, present their view and the, and, and the, and so they'll, they'll say things like this. I'm getting off the track here. <coughs> they haven't solved time. They haven't solved gravity. Why, why not? They think there's gravitational waves and they're not sure. They think it's a force. They think it's a distortion in the membrane or disturbance in the membrane or some kind of disfiguring of the membrane. But they haven't solved the mind in the brain either. Well, I'm not surprised. If you haven't solved time and you haven't solved gravity, you certainly haven't solved consciousness or the the brain and the mind. And again, they haven't solved matter and antimatter. There's supposed to be all kinds of antimatter. There's no antimatter. Very little antimatter. Lots of matter. No antimatter. Ups. Why do wave functions collapse with observation? Nobody's figured that out yet. They know it does. Well, we can tell you it does it, but why does it do it? Why does a consciousness impact the wave function of the quantum world? Or a measurement of any kind. And a measurement, of course, is, is, has to be initiated by a consciousness, and the consciousness has to evaluate the, uh, the measurement system. Why is there entropy? Sonoluminescence. That's biological, uh, that's a, that's a, no, that's bioluminescence. But sonoluminescence is sound waves produce light. Why does sound waves produce light? How is that happening? What about non-locality? Again, that's entanglement. We have non-locality. Things that are that are local uh, do not have causation. Causation is coming from billions of light years away. Again, entanglement. Uh, and bioluminescence, I have the emission of energy from a cell. Anyway, is time real or is time an illusion? That's yet to be decided by the atheists. And, and notice the disclaimer. The atheists haven't figured it out, but uh, guess what? The theologians have. Everyone who has ever ventured into this subject has agreed that time associates to motion. If I don't have motion, I don't, I don't have the ability to recognize time, they will say. But if time is felt, how do I deal with this? Let's keep going. What causes motion? Here's a better question. Who causes motion? How did all things begin to spin and vibrate and respond to a resonant frequency? Nikola Tesla, as I, I mentioned him last, last time. God lives here, he said. He's, God lives in the resonance, in the frequency, in the vibration, and the spin. If time correlates to movement, and it does, we can feel movement. Not at the quantum level, but motion is ubiquitous in this creation. Therefore, time must be real as motion is real. We know motion is real and time and motion are like this. So we have to conclude, obviously, logically, transitive property again. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. As motion is real, time must be real. 
We know this. Human beings did not cause the spin and the vibration and the resonant frequency element of the creation. We did not do that. So from what mind did that happen? And that is the mind from which time came. Especially, again, if time and motion are intertwined. And they are. Henry Bergson describes this as duration. I'm not going to do duration today because you will... Intuitive duration, he calls it, because bang, I will lose everybody. So far I've got... We, we have a... We have three people here now. Yay. It's amazing. Three of us. Lori is four, and I count as half, so four and a half. And then Brinkley, the dog, is a half, so there's five. If I have my mathematical system. But again, Bergson called this what I'm talking about as duration, intuitive duration, to be more precise, durational actuality of consciousness. In other words, we cannot express how we feel time. We can't define it. We can't express it. I can ask you all, describe to me the feeling of time that you have. You're just going to look at me like all of you were looking at me and half of you were asleep. How can half of a third be one thing, be a thing? It can, fractional, fourth grade fractions. In other words, we can, uh, again, but we believe by intuition that time is real. We, we think, that if I ask you, is time real? You all say, yeah, time is real. And wh- why is time real to you? How is that working? We, all, we, we know that time passes, or we're convinced that time passes. We think that there's an arrow, a direction to time. Why is this, and I'm going to say this word, divination inside us? So I answered the question with the inside the question. Did you get that part? Why is this divination inside us? How did it get there? What else came with it? So I'm back to the page one, aren't I? There's something different about the spirit of the breath of life that we don't know about. Not only does it affect our free will, or give us the free will to respond to the draw of Christ, but I'm saying to you that it also lets us recognize and feel time. Now we still have to decide what time is, why time is, what is he trying to prove with this? Does he have a plan? Or is time just some kind of concept is, is a throwaway thing? Ah, that is my creation. Let's just, let's just throw in a little time. Uh, that'll work. Obviously, I'm being sarcastic. Why is time a prominent piece of creation? What came first, motion or time? Is there an order to them? What if they both came at the same time? Thanks for laughing. I got a a pretty good laugh, half a laugh, a little bit of shaking, a smile. And so, uh, that's, that's 100%. Okay. The time is everywhere. Everything spins and vibrates, resonates. Resolves to, uh, to observation. So, so time, therefore, time is everywhere. Every, every, everything spins, everything moves, and so everything has time involved with it. The physical reality is marinated in time and gravity, consciousness uh, as well. And, and I have consciousness and this holding force of gravity. How is everything moving while gravity is there? I have a holding force, and yet everything moves. I have a holding system if you adapt the space-time continuum idea, which I am resisting, as you can tell. I'll be called a heretic by the theologians and I'll be called an idiot by the physicists. But still answer my question. 
from the idiot. How is everything moving while gravity is present? And it's moving it at the smallest possible level. Why isn't gravity impacting it? And, and that, of course, it, how does this continual motion and gravitational phenomenon coexist? Einsteinian gravity, general, general theory of relativity, is incomplete. It's obviously incomplete. And they know it's incomplete. What do they say we absolutely have to have? We have to have a result. We have, we have, to have, the, we have a need. Somehow we have to be able to explain quantum gravity, which is so far unexplainable. Why is quantum gravity unexplainable would be my question. Physicists are forever searching for the theory of everything, and so for to date, that that theory, theory or I'm sorry, that theory of everything is hidden. Oh, I'm not shocked by that. It's elusive. There exists no mathematical framework that unifies all fundamental interactions. And I should mention again that mathematics is an imagined concept. When I say it's imagined, is, is mathematics therefore real? Do you think mathematics is real? Do you think time is real? Well, mathematics is clearly imagined. Is time imagined? But if I can imagine time, I make it real. Imagination is, is boundless. What is imagination? What is intuitive thought? I should say imagination is boundless almost. William Arthur Ward said this, if you can imagine it, you can create it. It's a famous statement by him. Is the order correct? Does imagination precede creation? So whose imagination created? Did God imagine the creation before he created it? I submit Psalm 139.16. Um, Your eyes saw my substance yet being unformed. So he imagined us before he formed us. Obviously the thought pre-exists the action. But for today, consider another quote. If you can imagine it, it exists. This is imagination, a facet of reality. As many philosophers have concluded, the reality is within the, within the imagination. It exists in the mind's imagination. Where did imagination come from? Why do we have imagination? You could, you're imagining right now that I would shut up. But where did it come from? What's proved by imagination? Because it has to prove something, doesn't it? Once again, he does things that prove things. That's how he operates. So we have this imaginative capability. Where did it come from? Why do we have it? Human beings can imagine. We have imaginationalism. Right now, the vast internet audience again is saying, shut up. I imagine you being quiet. Now, so... I. And you're hoping that I answer a question. That's what you're imagining that I answer a question. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll answer a question, any question actually. Uh, but here I'll try. How, how about the image of God verse, Genesis 1.26? I have the image of God and I have imagination. Is that a coincidence? Notice I answered the question with a question, which is my diabolical system. I have a wonderful letter from... Dimebox Dan, he said, well, you sort of answered my question, but I'm starting to get why you're doing that. That is fantastic. He's ready to take over. To rerun the earlier question, is time real or an illusion? We imagine time. Time, therefore, exists. 
hopefully you're beginning to piece together Bergson's premise behind his title, his book title. His Time and Free Will was his book title. That was his thesis, doctoral thesis. How am I doing for time? Oh, i got to move. Why do we have this intuitive belief that time is absolute? That there is a time piece outside of the creation. In other words, there is our subjective time, but we know that there is a real time. We have this intuitive idea that somebody is keeping time. Why do, believe, why do we believe that the future always arrives after the past? Why do we think that there is a timepiece outside of the creation? To repeat that, I should affirm that there is a timekeeper outside of the universe. He does keep absolute time, the real time. Does he have a mechanical clock? Yes, he does. He doesn't need one, but he has one. So he has a scientific clock as well. And again, Ecclesiastes 3.11 lays it out. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Psalm 104.19, Genesis 1.17-18. Everything. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has an order to things. That indicates time. Order and time. Here we go again. Ecclesiastes 3.17. For there is a time for every purpose and for every work. What does that mean? Solomon was preoccupied with time. Read Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. This is the wisest man that ever lived. And all he wanted to talk about was time. I love Solomon. He might not like me, but at least he knows I'm on his side here. Solomon knew that time was a powerful ruling tool of God. There is a time for every purpose under heaven. Ecclesiastes 3, 1. The moon and the sun, they're rulers. Genesis 1, 16 and 18. Okay? How long is the rule of the sun and the moon? The Bible says in Genesis 1, 16 through 18 that the sun is a ruler. How long does it rule? And the moon as well. It's a ruler as well. Was the fall of Satan and his angels before the rule of the sun and the moon? Does the rule of the sun and the moon ever end? Chronicles, Second Chronicles 2.4 and Isaiah 30.26, Revelation 21.23, Revelation 22.5 seem to be definitive. The rule of the sun and the moon ends in the new city of Jerusalem. But what about Psalm 89.36-37 and Psalm 148.3-6 where it says the sun and the moon go on forever? How do you put that together? He has a timepiece. It is the sun and the moon. He's got a watch. And he says so. And he rules every work and every every purpose is subject to time. Psalm eighty nine thirty six through thirty seven, Psalm one forty eight three uh, two through six, one forty eight three through six, both testify that the sun and moon will be absolutely forever objects that praise God. Oh goody, that's important information. The sun and the moon is is going to praise God forever. Ecclesiastes 3.14, whatever God does, it shall be forever. Why does time, the sun and the moon, which are ruling, they are time elements. He says they rule the day and the night. That tells you that they are ruling over time periods. How is it that time praises God? Why does time praise God? I've been asking if time ends to see if anyone has begun to imagine how about that? Huh? Contemplate the end of time. Can you think about, can you imagine the end of time? If you can't imagine it, 
Isn't that interesting? You feel it, you think it's there, but you can't imagine it ending. You, you are trying to imagine infinity. Can, you, can a finite creature imagine infinity? Revelation 22.2 describes the tree of life as yielding its fruit every month. There's 12 fruits. So even in the new city of Jerusalem, where there's no darkness, where the light of Christ is, is, the, is the light that is in ruling there, uh, we still have 12 fruits that come every month. So keep, keep that to the forefront. Therefore, the better question would be, does the nature of time, the impact of time, what we think about time, does that change in the new city of Jerusalem? Immediately, we should recognize that time and death changes. There is no more death in the new city of Jerusalem as God defines death, not as we define death. Uh, only time and life, and that's for the saved. No life for the wicked, only time and death. So I have time and life, and I have time and death. In the, in the uh, Matthew 25:41, lake of fire. Then what about our recognition of time, being able to tell time? How are we going to tell time? Well, I just told you that every month you'll see a, do, a new fruit, so you're going to know a month has gone by. So why is he doing that in the new city of Jerusalem? He's, again, how does the how does time praise God? Because time praises God. How does it do it? What am I trying to say that it does? I'll, I'll just lay it out there because I'm on page 11 and everybody is gone now. So the one person that is there, not counting the three of you, Lori is asleep. The dog's asleep. I'm half asleep. Time praises God and the way that time praises God is time has this relationship with free will. And the fact that you have and I have and we have free will inherent in us through the spirit of the breath of life that is a praise to, that is glorifying God and you can start working that out while before you nap being able to tell time in the new city of Jerusalem again every month has a different fruit on the tree of life all of these and there's more to come why does God give time for example conspire to reveal the purpose the great sign that is time the meanings of time and again I would ask a friend, if I had one, can you imagine timelessness? Okay, so I'm putting those pieces together for you and hoping that you begin. To, I, I see the hands. I might be able to make it. I have to speed up now. The, the new guy distracts me because he hasn't fallen asleep yet. and so on. It's a lot more difficult for me to keep going. Well, he doesn't have a... Oh, you, you do have a pad. Oh, good for you. I told you. That pillow costs a dollar. Yeah, it's a dollar per pillow. She's got a, a footstool there that costs her 25 cents. He's got an easy chair that's 15 bucks. So you can work your way up. Okay. <laughs> there are the status symbols. Strata. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a couch you could lay down, that's 50 bucks. Yeah. We'll get you a blanket, it's another 25. Yeah, well, the church has got to make money. We're all about the money. And if we're not making money, we're not a church. Everybody knows that. Ask Joel Osteen. Oh, oh. <sighs> he could afford, a, he's got an extra billion dollars. He could afford a blanket. I shouldn't pick on him, but he's so easy. Good grief. If you can't pick on Joel Osteen, you're not doing your job. Okay. Uh, 
setting aside time and free will. Now, why time is bolted, why it's riveted to free will, that's the question. And then why time proves the existence of God and then why time praises God. That gets you started into this discussion and you're ready to resolve it. You don't have to wait for me anymore. We shall pretend to move along for now. Where shall we go? Perhaps you remember the question from January 22, 2023, lecture number 190, page 14, no one remembers. Is God capable of saving everyone, I ask? It's a binary choice, yes or no. You don't ever raise your hands in Cliffside Community Chapel. Never do it. Is God capable of saving everyone? Just answer the question to yourself, yes or no. Feel free to select. You can shout out your conclusion, but nobody will hear you except the whole Internet because they hear Dave and Terry all the time. They go, why are these people bothering you? That's a joke. Nobody laughed. But, uh, if you shouted yes then you progress to the second half of the question. Why doesn't he save everyone? If you say he can, why doesn't he? Now arrives my favorite question. How is that, why the fact that he doesn't do it, how does that relate to time? Now arrives my favorite question. If God predestined the lost, can he overthrow, can he reverse his decision? In other words, is God subordinated by predestination? Do you like that question? If you prefer, is predestination omnipotent, impossible for God to defeat? Can God's free will overpower predestination? How about that one? Again, it's a binary choice, yep or nope. And again, that's borderline heretical, but I can do it because I'm a professional. Don't you try that. Obviously, Malachi 3.6, for I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I change not. God is immutable. He is always good. He's never horrible and dreadful. He says so. Malachi 3.6. They don't know that he's saying I am always good. They don't understand that, that was, that's what he means. For those of you who begin to collect the 3.16s, Malachi 3.16, the Lord listened and heard. Why, would, why does God listen? What's he listening for? What's he listening to? The Lord listened and heard. So a book of remembrance was written before him. So when he listens and he hears, a book of remembrance is there. When he remembers you, when you are in the book of remembrance, the thief on the cross, remember me, then what are you? He's listening and he's hearing. And a book of remembrance was written before him and that includes the names of all who cried out to him. All who, When he said, come, they came. When he drew them, they responded. So salvation is tied to Malachi 3.16. And that should be added to John 3.16, Mark 3.16, Matthew 3.16, Luke 3.16, 1 Timothy 3.16, Revelation 3.16, Genesis 3.16. Go and get all of the 3.16s because they're all connected. And what do you have? A huge pile of information. It will be amazing. Ezekiel 3.16, also incredible. The word of the Lord. John 1, 1-4. Whenever you see the word of the Lord, you think John 1, 1-4 because they connect. Christ is the Word of God, right? The Word of the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, comes to Ezekiel and tells Ezekiel uh, 3.17-21 through 21, the warning of the watchman. Who does the watchman warn? Why does the watchman warn? Well, Ezekiel 3.18 lays it out. The Word of the Lord tells Ezekiel to warn the wicked. What? God wants, the, wants Ezekiel, the watchman, to warn the wicked saying, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. When God says that to the wicked, and you, Ezekiel the watchman, you give the wicked no warning or speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. 
That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. That's what the warning of the watchman is. The watchman's job is to warn the wicked to make him turn so that he can save his life. Now consider that if you can. Again, it is critical in order to avoid a mistaken analysis of Ezekiel 3.16-21. through 21. You must begin with the word of the Lord, John 1, 1 through 1-4. The word of the Lord speaks this principle to the prophet Ezekiel. So, direct from the Creator God Himself, Jesus God Himself, is this regulation that is the watchman's warning. Beginning with John 1, 1 through 4 brings the required appropriate majesty and solemnity to Ezekiel 3.16, 3.21. If you don't know that that's Christ saying that to, the, to Ezekiel, you're going to blow it. And I have these companion scriptures of Ezekiel 3.16 through 3.21 and, and Ezekiel 33, 1-11. Ezekiel 33.11 uh, is the Lord God saying to Israel, As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. but that that the wicked turn from his way and live. So there's God himself saying about the wicked, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. You recognize, I hope, 2 Peter 3.9 being the New Testament compliment. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who am I attacking now, the Calvinists or the Arminians? Let me repeat that. As I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's as definitive as you can get. Does that sound like the man? Does that sound like the God of predestination? It cannot comport. I'm introducing Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 33, because once again, obviously, I'm proposing that the exhaustive predestinational position has no tenable answer here. It cannot answer Ezekiel 3:16 through 21, or Ezekiel 33:1 through 11, or 2 Peter 3:9. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I keep repeating that. He did not will that any should perish. Put those two together. He never, it is not his will that people perish. If it's not his will, how do people perish? Is predestination a willful act? He's just saying it's not me. It's not my willful act that people should perish. Oops, there goes another rubber tree plant, Frank Sinatra. In fact, the law or the edict of the watchman's warning is unequivocal. The watchman must warn the wicked, must attempt to save his life, save the life of the wicked. And now I know what you're thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. Many commentators argue that Christ is not referring to eternal salvation. He's referring to physical death and physical life, not eternal life. I should say this really fast. Is there any explanation that hyper-predestinationism can can, can can survive Ezekiel 3 and 33 and 2 Peter 3 through 9, 2, 3 through 9. I said that wrong. I don't have time to go by. 3, 9. 2 Peter 3, 9. It's not referring to physical life. He's referring to eternal life. How do I know that? And those who say it's physical life, they're doing it because they have no explanation that can exculpate total deterministic salvation theory from the barrage that is Ezekiel 3, 16 and 21. Ezekiel 33, 1-11, and 2 Peter 3, 9. Praise it in another form. There's no explanation for those verses from, those, from the doctrine of predestinational absolutism. There's no explanation. So the, it cannot coexist. It cannot comply with virulent extremist Calvinistic determinism. 
So that's why they beat to fit it as best they can. They say the watchman's warning is restricted to the physical death of the wicked and not to their eternal destiny. In other words, they're talking about not not the second death, Revelation 20, 14, 15, but just physical death. Alrighty then. What is the ultimate destiny for a wicked one to die in his iniquity? What's the ultimate destiny for that person? That's the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20, 14 through 15. That's the second death. Is Christ the omnipotent, omniscient authority over time? Can Christ tell time? If he can tell time, what time is he talking about? The time of your physical death or the time of the eternal death? Which one does he focus on? He even tells us. He says very clearly in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear the one who is able to send both body and soul to destruction in the lake of fire. That's what he says. Focus on the lake of fire. Only time... I'm sorry. The only time the uh, resurrected bodies of the wicked ones are reunited with their corresponding souls, the breath of the spirit of life, and both and both body and soul are cast into destruction. That's the second death, Revelation 24, 15. No one but Jesus God, to whom all judgment is given, John 5:22, Revelation 20:11. No one but Him can sin, can cast both body and soul to perish in the lake of fire. He's the only one that can do it. No one else can do it. Logically, Matthew 10:28 finds direct connectivity. Ezekiel 3.16.21 and 33.1.11 and 2 Peter 3.9. I, on some tiny little level, appreciate the futile attempt that they made here to withdraw eternal life and eternal death from Ezekiel 3.16-21, 33.1-11, 2 Peter 3.9. These, because those three things, they form a fatal rebuttal to super-deterministic absolutism, hyper-Calvinism. And the irony where the Bible is actually referring to the physical returning of Christian Jews to Judaism in the doomed city of, of Jerusalem, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, that's the 70 AD destruction. These, they claim, are evidence of losing salvation as, as the Armenians insist, which is impossible. You can't lose your salvation, but they insist that verses are talking about that. And are evidence that the Hebrew Christians were never truly saved, as the Calvinistic side asserts. So I answered the question, didn't I? Yay. Took me forever, but how do both of them say that the same verse is, is advocating for their position? Well, that's how. Never mind Matthew 13:29, where Christ sends his angels to separate the tares from the wheat because the, the idiots, the human beings, can't do it. We have no responsibility for deciding who's saved and who's not saved, but we unceasingly do it. So we are not the, the, the ones who harvest the wheat and the tares nor are the Armenians or the Calvinists, neither are the self-appointed arbiters, the gatekeepers of the salvation of Christ. Those people are not doing that either. They can't do it because they don't know what to do. An important detail to gather is that Ezekiel 3.18, the Hebrew word, is only used in Hebrew or in Ezekiel 3.18 and is transferred to say, transferred, translated to save his life. That's the only place that it is there. So the only place that that word is in the Bible at all is in Ezekiel 3.18. What are the chances it's referring to physical death? It's not. It's referring to eternal life. It never is rendered anything but to save his life. Therefore, the only context to allow us to determine it, if it is eternal life, I propose, is 2 Peter 3.9 again, Matthew 6.12. What does Matthew 6.12 say? We are supposed to pray, forgive those who have sinned against us. So I hope you see the watchman there. 
Ezekiel is to warn the wicked. Forgive the wicked. Hard to do. And then John 17, 9-12, which includes Christ's great statement, those whom you gave me I have kept and lost none except the son of perdition. He tried to keep the son of perdition. Now, again, he's omnipotent God, he's omniscient God, so somehow he lost Judas, the most wicked of all wicked people, at some point. He is the Antichrist, as you know, in my position. Anyway, time is obviously inherent. It's elementary to motion, so whatever vibrates, spun, creation into motion also brought time at the same time. That's a joke. Time is not physical in any manner. Therefore, John 4.24, 1 Corinthians 2.10-12, Romans 11.34. So far, so good. But how is time and free will, as Berkson concluded, proved? Again, there's a time to, to everything. There is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Every act, every action, every motivation, every reason, every purpose. Time records that. Think of it this way. It's a time stamp. Every thought you have had, everything you've ever done has a time stamp next to it. So when the judge of all things is, is looking at you, he's searching your heart and your mind, Revelation 3. He's got a time stamp there. Okay? That's very important. So I will stop there. I have 40 more pages to go, but I'll call it good. I'm only, what, 10 minutes past? Did we start on time? Ha, ha, ha. Did we? Were, were we late? I'm five minutes past? That's, that's the same as being on time. That's perfect.